0: Dave and Nancy Waters were linguists working with a Bible translation organisation in Nepal, which was a very isolated mountain kingdom in 1969. And they'd gone up there to, to meet a tribe who was so remote that many people in Nepal didn't think they actually existed. They thought it was just a legend. Eventually they found this tribe through some amazing events, searching through the snows, to there in the foothills of the Himalayas. And they tried to reach these people so they could understand their language and give them the Bible in their own heart language. But it was deeply frustrating. They couldn't find a language helper. They were depressed, a long way from home, homesick, struggling. They nearly gave up. And then one day, finally, Dave, who was a friend of my father, found a man who could teach him the intricacies of the calm language. And this man's name was Hasta Ram. Up there in the mountain heights, in the blue beyond... Dave discovered that God had already been preparing the way. He asked Hasturam to help. And this is how he described what happened next. Point blank, right out of the blue, came the question, do you know about one called Jesus Christ? This is a tribe that had never heard about Jesus. Dave said, I was astonished. Unable to find my voice, I nodded my head in the affirmative and stammered, where did you ever hear that name? Without answering he got to his feet, took a small key from his pocket, and walked to a locked metal trunk in the corner of the room. He turned the key in the lock, opened the lid, and drew out a small booklet in the Nepali Nepalese language, dog eared and worn. The pages brown with age, some falling loose from the staple binding. I read this book every day, he said, as I sit with my cows on the hillside. I carry it everywhere I go. It tells about one called Jesus. But I have not till today found anyone who knows anything about him. If I go with you, will you promise me one thing? What's that? I asked. I'll teach you my language, he said, but I'd really like it if you would tell me all you know about this man. And Dave says, my heart beat wildly. I can do that, he answered. (laughs) I'll be happy to teach you all I know about him true story uh, has to ram had somehow come across a copy of one of the gospels the true official biographies of Jesus Christ and we're studying the gospel of Mark together and what we said last week I'm going to repeat it often is that Mark is the story that changes everything it's the story that changes everything in the first 13 verses we've had the curtain pulled back and we've seen what's really going on behind the scenes we've learned about the majesty of Jesus Christ We've learned about his mission. And we've also learned that one who is great and majestic and sent on a mission by God the Father is also meek and obedient and gentle. Jesus, it turns out, is the long awaited king, the one appointed by God, the one who will sort this world out and all its problems. Verse 1 claims it the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, which is another way of saying King Jesus. In verse 11, God the Father speaks from heaven and affirms Jesus' royal identity, alluding to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm, and in which God uh, speaks and says, uh, if I can find it, verse 11, You are my son. God speaks to the king, and he says it to Jesus here. And by the end of verse 13, Jesus has already defeated humanity's greatest and oldest enemy a spiritual being known as Satan, the accuser. He's relived the testing of Adam and Eve in the garden and the testing of Israel in the wilderness. That's suggested by the number 40. Uh, Unlike Adam and unlike Israel, Jesus was victorious. He's vanquished Satan on his own out in the wilderness, surrounded by wild animals. So you might say the book's starting well. He's the king. But what kind of king is this? And what sort of kingdom is he over? Having been appointed by God, have we got a problem here? It's just a bit crackly, but Okay, sorry. Having been appointed by God, Jesus then gets thrown out and sent out into the wilderness. He's the king. We know this now because we're the readers, but no one else in the story does. And Mark will show us 15 chapters of people saying and asking, who is this? And then getting the wrong answer. Only one person in the book, one human, really gets who Jesus is, and it's one of the guys who killed him. Not until chapter 15, right near the end, a Roman centurion looks at how Jesus died on the cross, and he says, surely this man was the Son of God. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. Today, the curtain falls back, and we read about the events as they unfold in front of people. And this book was written down within living memory, eyewitnesses, affirmed to mark what is written down here. And we read the events of the early days of Jesus' public ministry, and we start to get some answers to the questions, what kind of king is this, and what sort of kingdom does he lead? So we have three points today, and Frank will bring them up. And I think I owe Frank and Rupert an apology. I put these into the PowerPoint before the service, and I think I deleted The thing that Rupert was going to read out earlier. So, my bad. (laughs) Firstly, we learn about the summons of the king. Secondly, we learn about the authority of the king. Thirdly, we hear the call of the king. The summons, the authority, and the call of the king. Are you with me? Yes, three of you are. (laughs) Verse 14 summarizes what Jesus is really all about. Have a look with me. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, or gospel, of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So he's announcing something called the good news. Or another word for it is the gospel. Now, a gospel in the ancient world was a news report. It was a news report about some awesome... World-changing victory. And this one, it says, is the gospel of God. This gospel, this good news report comes from God himself and it announces that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God, what is this kingdom? A a kingdom, the kingdom of God is not a spatial kingdom like the United Kingdom or the kingdom of Cambodia. Or the kingdom of Gondor, and for any geeks out there like me. The kingdom of God is the reign of God, the rule of God over human lives. So it's the the sphere of God's reign and rule, okay? It means that God has now, as it were, entered the fray of human affairs. Now that Jesus has come, the world is under new government. There's a new reality. God is on the loose. The great prophet Isaiah had prayed, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And what we heard in Jesus' baptism was that the heavens were torn apart. And God indeed has come down now. And in light of that, that the kingdom of God has come near, Jesus says what? Everyone must repent and believe the good news. Everyone. Now what is repentance It's not a word we use very often. Repentance is a total change in the direction of your life. A total change in the direction of your life. Not just changing some of your characteristics, you know, working on your temper. Not just tweaking some of your behaviour. But a complete change in the direction of your life. But why does Jesus say here that the kingdom of God is near and not here You think it is here, isn't it? Jesus is here. The answer is because God's kingdom is breaking into history with Jesus, but it's not fully established. If I can use a couple of long words, the kingdom of God here is inaugurated, but not consummated. It's begun, but it's not finished. It's here and not fully here. And this took Jesus' followers years and years to figure out because they thought it was all going to happen at once. Right at the beginning of the book of Acts, some of you may remember Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been crucified, buried, risen from the dead on the third day. He comes to teach his followers, and what's the big question they want to ask? Are you now going to restore the kingdom? You know, we've been waiting for three years. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know that. And what we now know, nearly 2,000 years later is that we are living in the in-between time, between two comings. The first coming of the Lord Jesus in humility, as a baby, one of us to die on the cross in our place as a substitute, and the second coming when he returns in glory, and every knee will bow, and every eye will see, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord of all. We're in the in-between time. Kingdom started, but it's not fully here. And in this time, there's an amnesty. Anyone can come in. So the call is repent, total change of direction, and believe. So this means that this gospel, the story that changes everything, is not lifestyle advice. It's good news, not good advice. It is, in fact, a royal summons to submit. One scholar called David Garland says that the dominion of God has come near, so near that Mark believes you could reach out and touch it in Jesus. The future created by God is no longer like a a flickering hope that's light years away. The future that God promises has now become available in the present. No representative of an earthly sovereign would ever announce, so-and-so has become king, and if you like, you can accept him. The very announcement that so-and-so is now king contains an implicit demand to submit. Jesus' announcement that God is king, the kingdom of God has come, contains the same absolute demand on us. You see that? Yesterday I heard the story of a friend of mine. He's a church leader and a church planter up in Scotland. He had a life that... uh, uh, I've seldom known anyone with a life that was uh, someone who was so broken. He was abandoned at the age of two by his mother. His father had long gone. He was thrown into the care system. He went from one foster home to another. He was, he was beaten. He was abused in the most vile ways. Uh, at the age of 16, the, the system chewed him up and spat him out. He was on the streets, alone and scared and homeless. He was... He was raped, he was addicted, he was terrified and in the end he committed a crime and was sentenced and put in a category A prison. Some years later, a very, very angry young man, he met some Christians, very traditional Christians, wore smart clothes to church, talked in old-fashioned language. They invited him into their church, they invited him into their home, some of them said come and live with us that he was eating at a table sitting eating a meal at a table that he hadn't done for more than 10 years and he started to find out about jesus and then he read the book of romans the longest of paul's letters in the new testament and he said i hated it i hated it because up until that point i'd been the victim and what a victim he was he'd been through everyone had the, uh, abused him and broken him but but in, in romans it says every single one of us is a wretched sinner And he hated that. No, no, I'm not a sinner, I'm the victim. And it came over him like a heavy weight. And eventually, there was some kind of breakthrough. And he was freed. And he said, until that time, I had never understood that liberal God who just accepts people in a wishy-washy way. And now I saw the biblical God whose wrath and anger and righteous judgment are on the sin of the wicked, which is every one of us. And in that light... The mercy and the love of Jesus Christ shone out. And he submitted to Jesus. And that submission set him free. It's a paradox that, isn't it? You want to be really free? You've got to be a slave to Jesus. Now I know what some of you are probably thinking. You really don't like this language. Submit. You really don't like it. You feel infuriated at anyone who would dare to say that you need to change. You refuse to take your sinful state seriously. You'd rather pin the blame on something else. You've always got someone to blame. You, you always, as my wife sometimes tells me, you always have an excuse for why you did something. <laughs> You've got issues with authority, even God's authority. Now that is classic, late modern, Western individualism. I get it. I breathe the same air that you do. I was brought up in the 70s. I don't like wearing a bike helmet. I don't even like wearing seat belts. But I would just ask you to stay with this for a moment because after the summons of the king, we see the authority of the king. And I want to ask you to take a careful look at Jesus if you're really struggling with this idea of submission because when you see his authority and what he does with authority, you see that Jesus uses his authority to restore people to put them back together so that they flourish so that they're free the authority of the king verses 21 to 34 now there's authority of Jesus here in three areas and those of you who are observant now realise this is a five point sermon posing as a three point (laughs) sermon by the way it's not really um, 25 to 2 we've got loads of time (laughs) Authority of Jesus in three areas. Intellectual, spiritual, physical. Firstly, intellectual authority of Jesus. Look at verse 21. They went to Capernaum and uh, when the Sabbath came, that's Saturday, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Synagogue's a meeting place for Jewish people, a religious meeting place. He, he's teaching. Look at what it says, verse 22. The people were amazed at his teaching because... He taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Seems a little bit hard on the teachers of the law, doesn't it? Now these were were experts. They were the the academics of their time. They were studied and and steeped in God's word, the Old Testament. They were were the experts. But they they also didn't speak on their own authority. They had derived authority. They would quote authority sources like... Rabbi Yohanan and Rabbi so and so and they would say well so and so says this so and so says this and when they quoted the Bible they would say thus says the Lord that's a derived authority that's an appropriate way for a human being to speak but Jesus doesn't speak like that Jesus teaches with original authority it comes from him he doesn't say thus says the Lord he says I say to you Now just think about that. That's extraordinarily bold. You know, there are plenty of places in in, um, the Gospels, if if you've ever read them, where Jesus says something like this, truly, truly I say to you, or the old version says, amen, amen, I say to you. Now that was something that people would often say at the end of a statement when they were talking about something that God had said. So God says this, you shall honour your father and mother, amen, amen. You're giving the amen to it. Jesus is saying, up front, before I say anything, amen, amen. Get the point? Truly, truly, what I'm about to say is authoritative. Now, what does that mean? He's saying, I take away your right to judge my teaching. No one has the authority to reject any part of my teaching. Nor is there any standard for evaluating Jesus' teaching that is higher than him. No one has ever done this before, or since. His hearers were totally astonished. Therefore, we would be wise, wouldn't we, to submit our ideas and our beliefs to Jesus. Let Jesus Christ challenge your intellect. Intellectual authority. Secondly, spiritual authority. Jesus, the exorcist. Look at um, how it carries on. So he's teaching, and then... Imagine if this happened in a church meeting. I hope it doesn't. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This is a terrifying episode. I mean, I've been in some weird meetings in my life, but nothing quite like this. A guy just kicks off. And everyone's scared because, you know, this is a person who, it says, is possessed by an impure spirit. Someone whose personality has basically been destroyed and who is occupied by something evil. Now, I've got to have a little bit of a sidebar here for those of us who are sceptical about demons. And there'll be some of us here who aren't. I just want to say three points. Firstly, if you believe in God, you must accept the possibility of demons It's not logically consistent to accept the existence of God, a good supernatural being, and also then to refuse to believe that there might be evil ones. Secondly, Jesus believed that demons existed, and the Bible consistently teaches that they do. So if you accept Jesus, you have to accept this teaching. You can't just pick and choose bits of the Bible. And thirdly, if you test the hypothesis that demons do exist, it makes sense of radical evil. Just think about some of the things. I won't go into details, it's not appropriate. Some of the things that have happened in the last hundred years in our world. The Holocaust. Some of you have visited the, uh, those concentration camps in Poland. You've seen the piles of shoes. You've seen the gas chambers. How do you explain that? No individual German was really that evil, were they? Years gone by, we've had Rwandan Christians in our church. You know the Rwandan genocide, if you, if you know anything about that. was a shocking, rapid, extraordinarily violent episode in history. And some Christians joined in. How do you explain that kind of radical evil? Now, the Bible puts some of it down to demonic influence in the systems of our world. Systemic evil. Without it, I think it's hard to make sense of that kind of evil. Anyway, back to the main point. Jesus shows he has awesome power over the spiritual world by this exorcism. Now, this is a step further than what he's done already. So so, so far, he's claimed that he's got great authority by this authoritative teaching. But now he actually demonstrates it. He has real power over supernatural evil. And this, again, is beyond anything that other spiritual leaders have done. Other spiritual leaders in the ancient world and in the Bible, they call upon God, they call upon a higher power to help them to cast out a spirit. They come up with some hocus-pocus and some magic and some incantations and they try really, really hard and they, they pray for a long time and they, they, they lay hands on them they try and do things. No, Jesus doesn't have to do any of that. He just says... And remember, Jesus had a northern accent. <laughs> he just says, shot it and get out. And immediately, spirit goes. Intellectual, spiritual, thirdly, physical authority. Jesus the healer. What an amazing scene this is. He's finished his sermon, feeling a bit tired and hungry. Goes back to his friend Simon's house, his follower's house. And there's mother-in-law but mother-in-law is really ill. It says a fever, but in those days a fever was regarded as a very, very serious thing and might even be seen as, as some sort of judgment from God. She's burning up with fever. She can't possibly get out of bed and feed these hungry guys. And so what does Jesus do? You notice how much effort he put into it? Where is it? Verse 31. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. Some of you doctors, wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Yes, Dean. It would make your job so easy, wouldn't it? We'll just go to Donald Lee's ward there. He's been in bed since July the 5th, is it? August. August the 5th. And all the highly educated doctors are attending to him. But imagine someone just walked in, took Donald gently by the hand and helped him, and up he gets Completely restored. And it might look like this is some sort of you know um, patriarchal thing going on where the woman has to wait on them. But what's really happening here is there's a little picture of what happens when Jesus comes into your life and he restores you, is you start to serve. You start to serve other people. That's the heart of being a disciple. And Jesus himself was the great servant. She gets up, fully restored. And so, of course, word gets out. I mean, could you imagine? This guy went into the hospital and just helped someone out of bed. Can you imagine? Now, what does it say next? Did you see that? That evening after sunset, you see, they're Jewish, uh, faithful believers. They won't come out on the Sabbath But the Sabbath ends at sunset, so they're all waiting for it. Is it time yet? Get that sick family member on that stretcher. We're going down to that house. And if you have anyone ill in your family or friends or you you suffer with ill health, you would sell your shirt to get down there, wouldn't you? Of course you would. The whole town is pounding at the door. It says, uh, the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many It doesn't mean he only healed some of them. It means there were many of them. Many who had various diseases, lots of different things. He doesn't just do fever. You know, he does all sorts. But he would not. And he drove out many demons, but he wouldn't let the demons speak. They know who he is. He doesn't want that secret out yet. Wow. What does this show us? He is the king over the physical world. He is concerned about it. He both teaches and heals. He meets spiritual needs and physical needs, and so should his followers. So, that was the longest point, by the way. (laughs) Intellectual, spiritual, physical authority. What a man. You see, with Jesus, we're not just talking about someone who offers you a belief system that sort of promises you to get you to heaven. We're talking about somebody who's bringing in a whole new realm of existence. Liberating, delivering, restoring, healing, rescuing. And the Bible teaches that what Jesus did then for a few people, he will do at the end of time for the whole world. He will bring in the age to come. Amen? You see his immense authority, but do you see what he does with it? He uses it to restore humanity. He delivers and frees people. So do you want to be part of God's future? Or do you want to stay living in this sick, broken world? People struggle with the idea of Christ's total lordship. They struggle with the idea of submission. But look, deep down, you know, we all really want a great king. We are made for it. You can tell because human beings instinctively seek out and serve some higher purpose, some higher goal. And whatever that is that you are following at the moment is your king. So there's actually no alternative to being under the rule of a king, even if it's your career, or your academic achievement, or the approval of other people, your beauty, your success... Let me ask, who who is it who influences your behaviour so that you find yourself copying them even when you didn't mean to? That might be your true king. If Jesus Christ is not your king, then someone else is. And anything else that you look to as an authority is a false god who will take your life. He has this authority, but he uses it to restore people. Thirdly and finally, the call of the king. The call of the king. Let's look again at verses 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he'd gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay he called them, and, they, and, and what? they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now this is an extraordinary scene. Here are people who are not just in the family business, but it's probably been the family business for generations, maybe even for hundreds of years. This is all they know. They're fishermen, which is a great trade, because you can always put food on the table. And if you haven't got enough, you just fish for a while longer. And you can sell fish and you can live by it. And this is what they do. This is their place in society. It's their status. You might say it's their identity. And what does Jesus do? He comes up and he doesn't negotiate. He gives an abrupt command. Come, follow me. And they immediately follow. Now this kind of looks bizarre to me. Um, Luke, Luke's Gospel and John's Gospel, fill in a bit more background these guys had met jesus before they'd seen things about him but not mark he wants to show it as being really decisive instant radical obedience because he's showing us the power of jesus someone who could can you imagine walking up to someone on the street and just saying to them come follow me i mean what would you do if someone said that to you You'd run a mile Now, where does this lead us? Do you know, this leads right to your front door. And it's right to your bedroom. This is what happens when the king shows up. For them, it meant they had to leave work. Their role was redefined. Fishing was all they knew. But now Jesus is rewriting the script, and he's given them a new job description. Fishers of men. What's that? It's a very ominous thing in the Old Testament. It means gathering God's people for judgment. But in the New Testament, it gets a new glorious meaning, which is to gather people out of the realm of darkness and chaos, the water, and bring them into the light, the glorious presence of Jesus Christ. They leave their, their work. They leave their family. Do you know there's something poignant about this scene? That they leave Dad in the boat and follow Jesus. When Jesus Christ calls you, the place you belong is redefined. Now, your primary loyalty, your primary allegiance is not to family, but to Jesus Christ. Some implications of that. There will be times when you have to obey Jesus instead of your family. And for some of us from traditional cultures, that will be something you have to count the cost of. There will be times, there may be times that you have to obey Jesus instead of your parents, but you have to balance that with the biblical law to honour your parents. Jesus, however, must come first. For some, family will be deeply disappointed if you take Jesus seriously We've had at least one person in this church who came to faith and was disowned by their family. People in this country have been killed, honour killings, because they took Jesus at his word and followed him, and their family killed them. People in the Midlands. Some of us here who are from British families, maybe it'll all be a bit more civilised and quiet, but you know you've been disapproved of. Are you going to take Jesus seriously? And if Jesus is your family, then Jesus' family is your family. We are family. (laughs) That means that this ragtag group of people at this church, all these misfits gathered together in Grace Church, are your family. Brothers and sisters. That means we have to love our church family. Um, what if what someone wants to borrow something? I've forgotten. Someone asked to borrow something from us, and I forgot it today, so I've been convicted by my own sermon while <laughs> preaching it. What if somebody turns around at an inconvenient time, you know, you're wearing your dressing gown? Oh, I need me time. What if somebody needs a meal? Yet another person has had a baby. You can always buy them a takeaway. Anyway... What, let me say something I, I, I'm going to feel a bit sharp but I'm going to have to say it anyway there's about 60 of us on something called WhatsApp um, I think we made one of our younger sisters feel embarrassed on WhatsApp the last few days uh, because we were kidding around about something she asked us to do on WhatsApp and I think how you started it <laughs> you know she's our younger sister I'm going to love her i will make her feel awkward You see how this starts to connect? All gone quiet. They left their job. They left their family. They left security. It's what I know. Fishing is a steady job. Now we're going to follow a young carpenter around the country. Goodness knows what's going to happen. Sleeping rough. You ever done that? I've done it a couple of times. I hardly got any sleep. What could happen? You take a risk. You take a risk when you follow Jesus. You don't know what he might ask of you. Are you ready to bet your life on him? Jesus is the king. And when you come under the rule of a king, it's not democracy. It's monarchy. And you come into a kingdom, and when you come in, all of you goes in. It's like becoming a citizen. You can't have a leg and an arm and an ear that becomes a British citizen, but the rest of you stays Nigerian. If you want to come in, all of you comes in. We've learned what he says. The summons of the king. We've seen who he is, the authority of the king. And we've heard what he demands. The call of the king. Come, follow me. So what is the real world cash value of this teaching? What does it look like in everyday life? Let's try and land the play. We were talking on Thursday night in our uh, life group which is called the base camp we were talking about the implications of living for Jesus and one person said you know I wonder what if God asked me to do something like sacrifice my child for him and somebody else said what if God asked me to sell my house and everything I have and give it away and follow him and you know the honest answer I really don't know And I thought about it for a couple of days. And then it dawned on me. Following Jesus, most of the time, isn't really about the big grand gesture. It's about the little things of everyday life. So I do know what Jesus is asking me to do at the moment. Do you want to know? Two of you do. What he asks of me is very real and very ordinary and very down to earth. He asks me not to cheat on my wife in any way, including visual. He asks me to say sorry to my kids when I bark at them or neglect to love them. He asks me to keep staying friends with people who really irritate me and from whom I get nothing. More and more of those as life goes on. (laughs) He asks me to pray diligently and read his word. He asked me to give enough money from my salary to gospel work that we really feel it, and that is over 10%. He asked me to tell the truth and to keep my promise even when it hurts. He asked me not to gossip or tell juicy stories about other people that I wouldn't say if they were in the room. He asked me to keep on repenting and keep on changing and keep on forgiving other people. He asked me to accept criticism. He asked me not to settle back into a judgmental spirit where I criticise others and evaluate them harshly. He asked me to keep my speech pure. He asked me not to tell lies. He asked me to take the risk of telling people about him, people who may well laugh in my face, even if they'll go cool on the friendship and think I'm off with the fairies. But you want to know what the biggest thing Jesus Christ demands from me? is to love. 1 Corinthians 13 has this amazing definition of love. It's quite beautiful. This is how the Apostle Paul shows us what love looks like. It's like a many splendid jewel. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not boast. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not keep a record of wrongs, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. The heart of what Jesus Christ demands from us if we follow him is that we become lovers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. It's the greatest commandment. He asks us to grow more loving. Every hour, every day. Until we see him face to face. That's what it means for me to be obedient to Jesus. What about you? But let me ask you in closing who's your king? Is it Jesus Christ? Are you all in? Or are you trying to pick and choose which bits of your life you give him and which you keep for yourself? Remember those early disciples they dropped their nets and followed no turning back that's what it is to follow Jesus Christ to hear the summons to see his authority to respond to his call. There's lots of different people in this room. I don't know you all. There'll be some lukewarm Christians here. You are a Christian. You're just not particularly hot at the moment. And I'm not talking about your looks. You're just kind of lukewarm, tepid. You know what? You are forgetting Jesus. The one that you loved and turned to all those years ago. Come back. Follow him. There'll be some compromising Christians There's something you're doing at the moment, some relationship, something that you're involved in, something you're even thinking, your thought life, your habits. You know, you are betraying Jesus. Stop today. Repent. Believe the good news. And there are some suffering Christians here. You're struggling with something and no one really understands. We don't understand it. We can't. Maybe you're suffering on your own. You need him. There's no one else. And then there'll be some here who aren't Christians, so happy that you're here. Now you know what it means to follow him, don't you? This is a high bar. This isn't just a bit of good advice. This is the summons of the king, who has all authority. He wants nothing less than all of you. What are you waiting for? Let's pray.